Hi, everyone. Thank you all for joining. Today, we have the great honor and privilege of having Miss Valerie Vanderford with us. Valerie is a mom, grandma, wife, gardener, photographer, and 10, 10 and a half year lung cancer survivor. A nagging cough led to a myriad of tests and ultimately the, the diagnosis of stage 3B lung cancer in 2011. She had her right lung removed shortly afterward and has been NED or no evidence of disease ever since. And she credits a positive attitude along with some natural supplements for her survival and preventing the recurrence of cancer. She's joining us today with the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative to share her story. Valerie, thank you so much for your time and willingness to be here with us. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. Before we continue, we want to launch a quick poll to get a feel of the audience we have today. And we have two questions that ask how much you know about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So if everyone could take a couple of minutes to fill this out, that would be great. Okay, I think we have um, a lot of responses in, so I'm gonna go ahead and end the poll and share the results. So it looks like um, a lot of people have heard about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. Some know a little bit and some, and a few people haven't heard about either. Um, so we're really excited that we have such a diverse um, group of people today on the call. And we hope that through the questions that we um, will discuss today and the topics covered that we'll be able to learn about um, both lung cancer and lung cancer. So to introduce myself and my team, my name is Priyanka and with me I have Drake and Vasu and we are part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative or ALSI for short. And for those who might not be familiar with their organization, we have a couple of slides to share about who we are. ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness for lung cancer and lung cancer screening. We are a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. We do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. And lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are about 70%. We believe that educating people about lung cancer and lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. So far, we've given over 120 presentations on lung cancer and lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the US, as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. And over the last year, we worked with 105 mayors from every single US state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. We've also had the opportunity to talk with several state leaders, including Arizona State Senator Leela Alston, who's a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, and the Lieutenant Governor of Colorado, Diane Primavera. 
In addition to our education, outreach, and advocacy efforts, we recently started a podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and advocates to share their stories. Elsie also worked with U.S. Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions, recognizing the importance of early detection of lung cancer through screening. And in December 2020, the Senate resolution was passed with unanimous consent, marking the first time the U.S. Senate has ever recognized the importance of screening. Elsie has also actively been working with Representative Brennan Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine's Law for Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. Lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using a low-dose computed tomography scan. This scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than five minutes to complete. The United States Preventive Services Task Force, also known as the USPSTF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. Right now, they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80 who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more, and who are current or former smokers who quit within the past 15 years, get annual low-dose CT scans. One pack year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year, and therefore 20 pack years can be met in a multitude of ways, including smoking one pack a day for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. If you know who, anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria listed on the previous slide, please share the link given by the QR code so that they can contact one of our doctors about lung cancer screening. And finally, we want to highlight that there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking, such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy to the lungs. It is important that we recognize these additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States who have never smoked still get lung cancer. So thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to that quick presentation. And without further ado, we can jump right into the podcast. We have a few questions prepared for Valerie, but we also have a Q&A session at the end where you all can submit any questions you have for her. And this podcast is being recorded and will be shared on our Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. So first off, Valerie, could you please introduce yourself and share your background? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, as mentioned before, I'm Valerie Vanderford. Um, I am a native Oregonian, so uh, being that, I love pretty much anything outside because we have a, a beautiful place where we live close to the mountains, close to the beach. So, kayaking, bird watching, hiking, any of that um, is, is great in my book. <laughs> um, I work at a local nonprofit therapy clinic um, in the admin office, and I also run my own medical billing service. So. Um, I do have a background in um, medical um, insurance and medical care, um, which I think was very, very helpful when I was diagnosed with lung cancer. So, Could you please talk a little bit about your lung cancer journey? Sure, absolutely. So um, it started out, as, as was mentioned earlier, as just a, a nagging cough. It was it was kind of a weird cough. It was like when I was a kid, my brother would come up behind me and squeeze me and you have that kind of that kind of forced cough. Um, and but I had some other other um, health um, issues that could have been causing the cough. And so my doctor and I were watching it and doing various, you know, trying various tests and things like that. And and she kept saying, gosh, you know, you've never smoked. I don't I don't think you need a, a chest X-ray. Um, and so we just kind of went along with, with continued treatments. Um, and then uh, my husband and I went to do some volunteer work in Guatemala. And I noticed that that high elevation, because I'm at sea level here in Oregon, but we were at about 5,000 feet. My, my cough got significantly worse. And so that was a little bit concerning for me. Um, and then about a month before my official diagnosis, I started getting what's called clubbing under the fingernails. So your fingernails, toenails start to get almost kind of like a bubble appearance underneath the nails. As I found out later, that's an indication of 
pulmonary compromise. But um, when I saw that going on, um, I thought, okay, something something weird is going on here. So I uh, I called my doctor and I said, you know, before I see you again, we should we should probably do something further. And I told her about the clubbing. So she sent me in for a chest X-ray, and and that's when they identified something suspicious. <laughs> and uh, then went into the CT scan and, and all of that as, as it progressed along with the various tests and, and uh, tools that they use for diagnosing it. Um, I have to tell you, I was 48 years old. I was, was young, I'm still young, but I was young at the time of the diagnosis. Um, it was nowhere, nowhere on my radar. Um, and uh, even as I was going through the testing, I didn't, you know, the various scans and tests, I lung cancer just absolutely was not on my radar. I've never smoked and uh, had the um, impression as a lot of people do that you have to smoke to get lung cancer. And so, and I also have a very dear friend that teased me that it was probably some sort of jungle rot I got from some of the travels that I've done and some of the volunteer work that I've done in third world countries. And so, um, so to say, or to learn that I had lung cancer was, was pretty shocking. Um, I remember the evening the doctor called me after they've done a bronchoscopy, which is where they go down into the lung and actually take a piece of the tissue, the tumor tissue that that's in there and uh, biopsy it and, and uh, take a look at it. And he called me that evening. Well, he actually asked me, would my choice be to come back in and discuss the results with him or, or would I like him to call me? And I'm like, oh, just just call me, you know. So I got the phone call one evening from my pulmonologist and um, he said, Valerie, he said, you have lung cancer. And I said, with all due respect, doctor, I think you have the wrong patient's chart. <laughs> That's how far off my radar it really was. And uh, he laughed and he said, no, I wish it weren't true, but it, but it was. So um, yeah, I, like I say, I, it was just something that I had never expected or anticipated, so. Thank you for sharing. I think um, the the type of story that you just um, told us is very similar to the stories that we've heard from other lung cancer survivors who've been on our podcast and that we've just talked with in general. And especially for those um, for patients who have never smoked before, lung cancer, as you said, is is never on their radar and it's oftentimes not on the radar of their doctors as well. And um, we, uh, one of the patients that we talked with earlier. Um, said that she was also never a smoker, um, later diagnosed with lung cancer, but uh, she had gone in for uh, several different tests and um, a CT scan was the very last thing on, on her list to test for um, because uh, she was a never smoker and um, neither she nor her, her doctor um, you know, ha had considered lung cancer as being a possibility. And another patient, um, uh, another patient said that her, her doctor actually Said she was a former smoker, um, and then once she quit smoking, her doctor said, um, "You're lucky that you never have to worry about, you know, being diagnosed with lung cancer." But later on, unfortunately, she was diagnosed. So I think the the pattern that we see here is that a lot of people don't realize that individuals who don't smoke can also get lung cancer, and I think that's something that um, a lot of research is being done in this field right now. So there is more information that's becoming available. Um, but before there was such a strong stigma between smoking and lung cancer that anyone who got lung cancer must have been a smoker at some point in their life. And I think it's just so important that we emphasize and raise awareness that it's not the case, that it's not, um, it's unfortunately has been called a smoker's disease in the past. And I think um, that stigma that we, um, that unfortunately still exists, it's, it's something that we need to work um, towards removing because um, anyone with lung, lung cancer and as the White Ribbon Project likes to say, no one deserves it. And um, everyone is um, should be offered the same treatment options, the same, um, the same services as, as uh, anyone else. So I think that's an, such an important part of, of the story, Valerie, thank you. Yes, yeah, and I would agree with you 100%. I, in reviewing the slides that you had, um, in looking at that now, my mother-in-law also passed from lung cancer and looking at those slides, she would have qualified. She was a smoker, but had quit, but her doctor just um, never initiated it. So I appreciate you uh, getting out in the public. I think if they would have caught it sooner for her via some early screening, it may have saved her life. So 
Definitely. And I think um, the the lung cancer screening guidelines that we mentioned on the slides were actually recently updated in 2021. In 2013 and up until 2021, there were um, slightly different guidelines that um, required individuals um, to have a 30-pack year smoking history or more. And um, the age criteria was a little bit different as well. And so the the new criteria um, makes a lot of more, lot more people eligible for lung cancer screening, and especially minority um, individuals, which I think is um, definitely a step in the right direction. Um, but a, a lot of people still aren't aware of the lung cancer screening guidelines. And even though we have um, CT screening and lots of studies have shown that it can help to catch lung cancers in an earlier stage when treatment options are better, prognosis is better. It, the simple fact that um, the general public is a large, large number of people aren't aware of the lung cancer screening guidelines. It's really hard to, to then increase the lung cancer screening rate, which um, we mentioned was just six percent for, for lung cancer among high risk populations when compared to the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancer, which are about seventy percent. So, I think just raising awareness about the screening guidelines is will go a long way, as well as making sure that primary care providers, any healthcare provider is um, aware of the lung cancer screening guidelines so that if they are talking with a patient who who meets eligibility criteria, who might be at high risk for other reasons, is able to at least just talk to them about, um, about lung cancer screening and potentially having that conversation with their primary care provider to see if that's um, a good choice for them. Hi, in what ways did your life change after being diagnosed? diagnosed with lung cancer? Well, um, I uh, a couple of different uh, thoughts come to mind on that. Uh, the first one being is, um, as, as anyone with a serious illness can probably agree with, you have to learn to trust your body again. Um, our bodies have amazing abilities to heal and um, overcome things, but it takes a while to just uh, trust your body again. And I, I told a girlfriend of mine, it's like, you have an older car, it gets you from point A to point B reliably, you know, back and forth. And then all of a sudden it breaks down. And then you go from there going, is it going to get me from point A to point B like it used to? And so, and I think learning to trust your body and the power to heal itself and, and heal in general with help from modern medicine or, or natural medicine or whatever uh, route you choose. And, and that takes a little while. <laughs> and then I guess just from the mental, emotional aspect, I would say one of the big things is um, just always leaving uh, people um, on a positive note when you visited someone, because you never know when you'll, if and when you'll ever see them again. And life is very short and it's very, very precious. It's truly a gift. And so, um, I feel very blessed to be a 10 and a half year survivor, but I also know I've seen other lung cancer um, survivors not make it or, and I've known several people that have passed from it since, since I was diagnosed and so, and have seen friends pass from other things. So um, all of that comes into play. Um, and I think too, sometimes you, even though you work really hard at it, you do kind of go through a why me, you know, why was it me or why was it them and, and not me that passed away? And, you know, you have to kind of work through some of that as well, so. What kind of treatment options um, did you have following your diagnosis? Um, well, I was um, treated at a large cancer center in Portland and they had a, a team approach, so a tumor board, um, and basically after I went through all the testing, I met with the, a portion of the team, but um, the, the first um, treatment option I was given, of course, was surgery, um, which not, that's not an option for everyone. And if my um, cancer had metastasized outside of the lung, I probably wouldn't have been eligible for the surgery. Um, it was a big surgery. <laughs> it was equivalent to about like an open heart surgery. Um, and then after that, I did meet with an oncologist and um, was offered some chemotherapy, um, which I chose not to take because they, um, they really didn't have a target for the chemotherapy. Um, so I figured I would, I would save that for down the road. Um, and then I pursued um, natural treatments after that. Um, I'm not opposed to chemotherapy. I just felt in my particular situation, um, it might not have been the best option. And I knew I had a, a very high likelihood that it could come back, especially in the first five years. 
So I kind of wanted to wait and see what, um, you know, if I, if I needed that option down the road. Um, they also did um, testing for testing my tumor for any mutations that might um, have been in the, the tumor and um, to because there are now targeted therapies that target those specific genetic mutations. Um, I was tested for four mutations and now um, I'm not up on my numbers, but I think there's at least 10 that they test for now. So that's what's happened in the last 10 years, which is amazing. Um, I, the only mutation I had was called KRAS or CRAS, and that's one that they told me you don't want. <laughs> and uh, they didn't have any therapies for that, um, targeting that mutation at that time. So again, uh, 10 and a half years ago. Um, but I also chose some natural routes. I was doing natural uh, vitamin C IV infusions for almost 10 years. I did those um, mixed with some other like resveratrol and some other known cancer fighting um, uh, supplements. And I've also been taking mushroom supplements um, that are known to fight cancer as well as um, I've adjusted my diet quite a bit, um, reduced the sugar and I really work on eating um, eating mostly just meats and fruits and vegetables and trying to get as much organic and uh, clean food as I can. And also try to emphasize um, eating foods that are known to fight cancer, like blueberries and pomegranates and asparagus and those kind of things that, that are really cancer fighters. And um, I also drink papaya tea, papaya leaf tea every day, <laughs> which sounds a little bit odd, but it's, a, it's something that is used in uh, Vietnam and other countries in that portion of the world to actually treat lung cancer. So um, I credit that um, and, and uh, just maintaining a positive attitude. Um, and I know part of the uh, out, outpouring of this when I was talking to my doctor a few years ago and I was asking her, you know, what can I do beyond what I'm doing? And uh, part of what I mentioned about earlier was the emotional piece of it is I developed a, um, I don't like the word support group, but it's kind of a support group. I call it more of just a survivor's group. And um, cause there's nothing, nothing, there was nothing at the time like that in the Portland area. There's breast cancer survivor groups. There's just plain old cancer survivor groups. But many of us have found that with lung cancer, it's, it's very different. And um, so I developed this group. Um, of course, COVID has changed it a lot. It's more of an online group now, but um, we used to meet regularly once a month and we still do online. But that's been an incredible opportunity to just talk with people, listen to them, um, give them ideas, um, you know, tell them what we're doing, um, listen to their story. It's been an incredible group and it's been very hard because we've lost some of our members, um, but we also have, have walked in those very same steps that people that are newly diagnosed walk through. So we try to walk through it together. <laughs> so. If you feel comfortable sharing, could you talk about your right pneumonectomy and what did the days um, leading up to your pneumonectomy uh, look like? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when my husband and I spoke with the um, thoracic oncology surgeon and he said, we're going to take your right lung, my husband and I both went, what? You can do that and live? <laughs> I had no idea people could live with one lung. And uh, but then we were thinking, well, he was not going to recommend something that's going to kill me and then say good luck with that. So um, we uh, when he said he would uh, the, we were doing the surgery, he gave me the option of having it done before Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving. And so I opted for after Thanksgiving and um, just figured I would, you know, go celebrate that time with my share that time with my family and then and then do the surgery. So my surgeon pretty much told me it's the biggest surgery a human being can go through. And it's not like he was replacing something. He was taking something out that would not be replaced. And so he said it's a, a big surgery. And um, going into it, um, they were not sure. He thought he might have to reconstruct my, um, uh, I think it's called the bronchi, the, the tube that goes into the lungs. Cause you know, you don't really know till you're inside there looking around what what all it's going to look like. Um, I was told it would be a six to eight hour surgery. And um, actually, I take that back. The day before the surgery, I had to go into the hospital and they did a, a small incision at the base of my neck and went down 
into my um, lung area and harvested some uh, lymph nodes to make sure that those were clear of cancer. Um, he told me if those had cancer in them, they would not take my lung out because I'd need my lung for the treatment that I'd have to go through after that. But if those lymph nodes were clear, then they would go ahead the next day. And it just so happens that in Portland is one of um, four places in the United States where they can do that kind of testing overnight. So they just kept me in the hospital. Um, and the next morning I went in for the pneumonectomy. Um, it, I have not met very many people that have had the surgery done the way that I did. He cut right down the center of my chest like an open heart surgery, opened me up like a butterfly and um, took the lung that way. Most of the people that um, I've interacted with that have had a lung removed, they take it through the ribs. So um, it's, it's, it's a big surgery. And uh, I spent five days in the hospital after the surgery and um, was doing pretty good. The, um, I had a doctor come in um, to me and say, hey, could I, could I talk to you for a couple of minutes? Your case is unique, you're very young. And I said, I said, sure, no problem. So I answered his, his questions. He was asking me, what kind of work do you do? You know, blah, 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 blah. And, and I told him and I said, but what I really want to do is I want to be kayaking again. And uh, he laughed and he said, it's going to be a long time before you're kayaking again. And uh, the picture that I sent you on my, um, my profile there uh, was me kayaking the following April, which in Oregon, you usually don't start kayaking till about April or May anyway. So I was very thankful to be back out kayaking again. Um, it was um, a pretty big recovery. I was, you know, pretty sore and pretty tired for uh, several days, or excuse me, several weeks <laughs> after the surgery. Um, went through a lot of physical therapy as well as chiropractic care and, and some other uh, modalities to help um, heal and, and uh relieve the pain in that. And it's been the, the source of some pretty entertaining conversations. <laughs> um, I'm in a group on Facebook called um, One Lung People Unite and a great group of people who've had a lung removed or been born without a lung um, for lung removed for various reasons. And so we we joke about the frog noises that your body makes when, because <laughs> you're, as I understand it from my surgeon, your body doesn't like open space. So it fills in with fluid and then eventually scar tissue in there and um, I found out also that um, a lot of your organs shift and move around and my heart has actually moved into the area where my right lung once was so that <laughs> that always makes for some interesting conversation and I sort of had a, have a, a, a sense of humor that gets me through many things and uh, I um, went in for a chest x-ray one day I was uh, concerned that I might have pneumonia and I asked the clerk at the at the hospital if I got half off my chest x-ray since I only have one lung <laughs> and uh, she she was a little bit gobsmacked for a few minutes and and I told her no 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 it's okay I'm just kidding but it's been the source of, of some humor <laughs> as well as some challenging times um, my my quality of life is is very, very good it's much better than I expected it to be with one lung um, I do um, I do have to slow down on like climbing stairs and hills and that kind of thing when I hike, but that's where the photography comes in. I stop and take pictures along the way to catch my breath. So, um, but I've, I've been to high altitude places. I've been hiking in Wyoming and Colorado and not really had any issues with it. So it's, um, it's like I say, I've been, I've been very surprised um, that the quality of my life has been so good after the surgery. And I did express that to my surgeon. I, you know, I said, what, what kind of quality of life am I going to have? And he said, I have a, a post-pneumonectomy patient that rides his bike all over Portland. So, um, and my husband was, he was saying to me, honey, I'm, I'm worried that you can't keep up with me. And I said, I can't even keep up with you with two lungs. So I don't know how it's going to be different with one lung. So we just try to see the humor in it all and, and just keep plugging along. Did you have any misconceptions about lung cancer prior to uh, prior to you being diagnosed? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I um, truly thought it was only something that smokers got. And as I learned um, through my diagnosis that at that time, um, women between the ages of 35 and 50 that had never smoked 
was the fastest growing category of newly diagnosed lung cancer patients. So there is something going on <laughs> that's causing this rise in lung cancer besides smoking. And uh, I, like I mentioned before, it was never on my radar, never even a thought. I don't have any kind of a family history of any kind of cancer. Um, and so it was it was quite a shock. And, and I was, um, I was, uh, I had just no idea that you could get lung cancer if you were not a smoker. It just, like I say, thought never even occurred to me. Do you have any recommendations for how to recover from such a large surgery and be able to continue doing activities that you were once doing before? It's very inspirational to, to hear how you've been able to continue doing the things that you love. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, some of my, my best advice would be just to, just to keep moving, keep, you know, even if it's just a few steps a day, I know um, when I, I, I used to walk my dog all over um, the area that I live in and stuff. And when I got home from the hospital, my, my dog looked at me and he was excited to see me. And then his ears went down. Like he, he, he knew that something wasn't right, but every day we just walked to the mailbox and then, you know, we increased it a little bit more and a little bit more and just moving is, is super, super important. And then also, um, any kind of care that you can get to help reduce the scar tissue of wherever your incision may be if you're having if you have a pneumonectomy or um, that type of a surgery you really want to get that scar tissue broken up because it can adhere and, and cause a lot of pain um, I had a lot of work done it was super painful and we always joke about physical therapists being the king and queens of, of pain um, but no pain, no gain, <laughs> but you just have to keep pushing through and, and you have to have a, a positive attitude. And I also think sense of humor um, goes along with that, that you just have to be able to look and, and laugh and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, I just, the movement was super, super important. I also did like water aerobics, which was a great low impact, but good um, exercise for cardio workout. Um, and uh, I just did all kinds of things. I did everything I could to, to stay active and just a little bit and, and change your expectations. You don't, you're not gonna be, I mean, there are people with one lung that climb mountains and run marathons and stuff, but I've kind of scratched those off my, off my list. <laughs> but um, just uh, take all the activity I can get and be out and about. A question leading back to your diagnosis, um, but have you heard about lung cancer screening before and did you have any concerns about it? Um, have I heard about lung cancer screening before I was diagnosed? Yes. Oh, um, no, I had not. And I think I still probably would have fallen under the radar because I was I was not a smoker and I was young. Um, but no, I had not. Um, it, it just was not something that had ever occurred to me. Um, I, I wouldn't be concerned about having the screening um, if, if with it being low dose um, uh, radiation with the CT scans. Um, that's what I have done now. Since I hit my five-year mark, they do low dose um, non-contrast CTs on me um, as a surveillance once a year. So. Uh, for many people who may not have a uh, know how to how a CT scan goes, how is the process of scheduling a CT scan and actually getting it? Um, there, that's probably one of the easiest tests, in my opinion, <laughs> to do. Um, you would either, uh, if you're under the care of an oncologist or a pulmonologist, um, they would uh, put the order in. And in my case, I'm able to do it in the very same building that my pulmonologist is in. So that's very convenient. And you basically lay on a table. They'll even give you a warm blanket if you want. And um, it, you just, it's kind of like going through a donut. I, I would take a CT scan over any other test any day. And believe me, I've had a lot of tests, but um, I, they're not as um, confining or claustrophobic as like say an MRI. Um, is you're just literally just lighting through a donut, you hold your breath and they bring you back out, you know, and it's, it's that simple and it literally takes five minutes. Um, some imaging centers I've gone to, they don't even make you put a gown on or anything. You can just go in with your regular street clothes on. So it's a little more, you know, comfortable as a patient. You don't have to 
put on those one size fits all gowns and <laughs> go through that, but it would require that your physician would order the test for you, so. Thank you for sharing. I think a lot of a lot of people are not sure what a CT scan entails, and that's sometimes a, a point of nervousness um, for a lot of people um, when talking about lung cancer screening. And many individuals are are worried about the radiation um, exposure that comes with the CT scan. But um, I, just one point that I want to emphasize is that uh, for lung cancer screening, we use something called a low dose CT scan, and that low dose part is very important because the radiation exposure from a low dose CT scan is very, very little, um, much less than a, and the radiation exposure from a chest x-ray um, or even just the radiation exposure that we experience in a year from just living on earth, radiation from buildings, um, the ground, etc. So um, we, we hope that the radiation um, aspect is not a concern for, for individuals about um, when it comes to lung cancer screening. And uh, another, another question we often get is, um, you know, the cost of lung cancer screening and how much, how much people have to bear. And for individuals who have insurance, most private insurances will cover lung cancer screening, but it's always a good idea to, to talk with your insurance provider if, if that's a concern. And for individuals um, with Medicaid and Medicare, most of the time it's also covered. So um, we, we hope that that um, also alleviates some of the, some of the concerns um, for, and for individuals who aren't um, covered by insurance, a CT scan usually costs anywhere from $300 to $400, um, but it can also vary. So just wanted to touch upon those. Um, and Valerie, um, what motivates you to share your story so publicly? Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, the first year to two years after I was diagnosed, I didn't share my story a lot. I was a little bit ashamed and I didn't want people to think that I smoked or that I got lung cancer because I smoked and also I found that the, some of the people I did mention it to would say things like oh my cousin got lung cancer they died and so I, I really didn't share my story a whole lot and then um, I realized that it was super important to do that that people need to be aware that this is anyone and everyone's disease and the statistics that you mentioned earlier absolutely support that, that it, anyone can get it. Anyone with lungs is at risk for getting lung cancer. And um, I know I talked to my surgeon many times and I'm like, you know, why do you think I got this? And he's like, we don't know. You know, I mean, after I was diagnosed, my husband and I immediately tested our home for radon. Um, we just, we don't know why I got lung cancer. And so it, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. And um, I think uh, a lot of times people uh, tend to dismiss the risk, but it, it's truly there. And especially if someone has a family history of it, even if you didn't smoke, if your parents smoked or, or um, you grew up in, a, in an industrial area, different things like that, just to be on top of it, because the earlier you're diagnosed, the more successful your treatment is going to be. But uh, my motivation now um, is just for people to understand that I'm a, I'm a regular old human being. I was out, you know, running around the planet just like everybody else and I got lung cancer. And so I just, um, I want people to, to be aware of that and, and to take any kind of steps that they can to catch it early if they might have it um, or prevent it. Um, I mean, my, my, I have two sons and they're in their thirties and I'm already bugging them and making them very aware that you have a family history and especially with their grandmother passing from it too that's on my husband's side of the family um but to be aware that it can that it can happen and i i've had people that friends that have a cough and they've had it for a while and i'm like have you had anything done for that have they done a chest x-ray or anything on you and they're like no 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 and i'm like and especially if the doctor dismisses it i'm like keep pushing for it i if there's anything i've learned in navigating our healthcare system is that you absolutely have to be your own advocate and if something doesn't feel right you need to keep pushing for it um i know one of our survivors in our survivor group pushed her doctor for a year year and a half to do a a, a chest x-ray on her and she had a family history of lung cancer also and um, the doctor, for whatever reason, just wouldn't do it. And I, and I have absolute respect for doctors and their education, 
um, but they are human beings and they can miss things. And so if something doesn't feel right to you, you need to pursue it further. You need to change doctors if you need to. I changed oncologists uh, about a year and a half, two years after I was diagnosed because I didn't feel like the oncologist that I was seeing was a good fit for my team and my personality. Um, so people, uh, we and we say that all the time with our survivors group too, don't be afraid to switch doctors. This is your life. <laughs> um, you don't have an expiration date stamped on your foot because <laughs> I was told at the year and a half mark or so that I would be lucky if I survived five years. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not a cup of yogurt. I don't have an expiration date on the, on the bottom of me. And so uh, you just have to, have to live each day, but you also have to make sure that you're, you feel comfortable with the care you're being, being provided and being given, so. Absolutely, I think that's, that's wonderful advice. And you mentioned um, testing your house for radon after you were diagnosed. And I think that's um, something that radon exposure is something that not a lot of people have heard about and or, or have gotten their house tested for. And there are some geographical locations that are at higher risk for having radon exposure, especially older homes. And so a lot of people ask us questions about, you know, where can I find whether my house um, is at risk might be at risk for radon. And so um, in the chat, we'll, we'll drop a spreadsheet um, that has the zones that are um, at higher risk for radon exposure. And so if this is something that you would like to do, um, hopefully this, this spreadsheet might help a little bit. But um, the advice that you provided about switching doctors, getting second opinions, I think that's very, very important because ensuring that you have a good connection with your doctor, you're able to talk openly about anything, um, have you know, trust them and, and, and they're, they're able to listen to you. I think that's such an important part about um, making sure that any any sort of treatment goes well and that the, the recovery process is smooth. So yeah, I think that's wonderful advice. Yes, yeah. And what are the current challenges um, that you believe the lung cancer community faces? Well, um, I see it improving as far as the stigma with smoking, but I still think that that's a that's a huge one. Um, and and funding for the um, for more research, and they're they're identifying more and more mutations. So treatments for those targeting specifically those mutations, because as they're finding treatments that target the specific mutations, they're also finding that the um, side effects to those treatments are lower, because you are going right after whatever mutation you have. And so that's um, that's been super positive and a, a huge improvement in the last uh, 10 years. But I would say definitely the, the stigma with smoking is, is still an issue. Um, I think also uh, getting into the early um, diagnosis and detection, like uh, the work that your organization is doing is is incredible. It's, it's great because lung cancer is, Part of the reason that it's so fatal is because it's diagnosed at such a late stage. Um, I was told by uh, my doctor that that tumor in my lung was there probably between five and 15 years, which, and I only went maybe eight months with symptoms. <laughs> and so it's, um, it's a difficult cancer um, to catch early, but, and I think um, that the, the CTs and that kind of thing are right on track. Uh, what advice do you have for someone newly diagnosed with lung cancer? Well, I would say the first thing is do not go on the internet. <laughs> I It was probably three or four months after I was diagnosed before I went on the internet. Uh, and I say specifically to Google, you know, lung cancer, because you're going to, the statistics are horrible. <laughs> they really are. They're better than they were, but they were really, really bad. And my husband went on and Googled them. I got that advice very, very early on, and I'm glad I did. I, I really didn't even, I kind of went into it intentionally clueless because I think I would have been pretty discouraged, and it is pretty discouraging. And um, so I would say stay off Google. Um, reach out to people that you may know, and, and you'd be surprised how, well, you wouldn't be surprised if you know the statistics, but you would be surprised how many people have had lung cancer or know someone who's had lung cancer. Um, but also, um, I get back to being your own advocate and not being afraid to ask questions to your doctor and finding a doctor that you're comfortable with. Um, but uh, 
The other thing I always tell um, newly diagnosed um, lung cancer survivors is um, that this is your own story to create and to write. And um, you can write a different ending than someone else might write for you. So um, just keeping that in mind, stay positive, never give up um, because there's so many different treatments out there and so many different treatments on the horizon, um, clinical trials, all of that kind of thing. I've seen people um, survive 10 and 15 years in active treatment with lung cancer and stage four specifically. So just it's just the next step and next step and take it one step at a time um, but write your own story. Don't let a doctor or a nurse or someone else write your story for you. Thank you so much, Valerie, uh, for sharing such inspiring um, and wise words um, for us and also the participants. Um, now I would like to open the floor for our participants to ask you any questions they may have regarding you or your story and if you feel comfortable answering them. So if you guys would like to ask Valerie a question, uh, feel free to unmute or put it in the chat. Great. I received a question from the audience. The person asks, for someone who has a loved one who was recently diagnosed with lung cancer, what advice do you have for how they can best support and help them? So um, uh, I would say definitely be there for them. Um, in, in whatever shape or form that looks like, um, ask them what they need. And some people are, um, some people are hesitant to ask for help. I know I'm one of those people. I can speak from experience on that, but after my surgery and after I was diagnosed, I had people, you know, say, well, we're going to bring you over a meal or we're going to come over and clean your house, which was super uncomfortable for me. I'm sitting in the recliner and people are running around my house around me, uh, cleaning my house. So, um, but things like that, just little practical everyday things. I had a, a friend, um, before my surgery, since we knew it was coming up, we made a whole bunch of batches of soup and froze them so that when I was home and my husband was back at work, I could just thaw the soup and have it for lunch or dinner or whatever. Um, but just, um, it, I would say, just ask them, ask them what they could, what you could do to help them, um, and and just be there for them, be available. And there's all kinds of different emotions that they're going to go through, and so just maybe riding the the wave of those emotions and supporting them and in, in however best they can. Um, the other thing might be to offer to help them go to appointments and take notes for them. Cause when you, when you're receiving news like that, your brain some, sometimes just kind of goes into a, a slumber. <laughs> and so having someone else there sitting next to you, taking notes um, is super helpful. And I know my husband did that for me, which was great. And then we got home and it was like, didn't the doctor say this? And then we could go back and look at the notes and see. So that was something else that was super helpful um, for me in, in going through that as well. Um, and then just um, a bouquet of flowers, um, a quick phone call saying, I'm not going to keep you long, but I just want to say hi. I love you. Let me know if there's anything that I can do for you. Um, I also just received a question. Um, what do you believe is the best way we can educate the upcoming generation about lung cancer screening? Well, I think... Um, looking at the statistics they definitely speak for themselves and i think it's amazing the work that your organization is doing with college students that's a great place to work on on this um you know and to to understand and realize that this is not just smokers that are getting this um you know i've met people in their late 20s that have been diagnosed with lung cancer um and and even younger than that and so just to realize that this, this disease can strike anyone at any time. And let's be aware, let's continue to, to look at other ways to catch it early and, um, and, and just uh, to be able to help people understand that, that we're all at risk. And especially I think with you know, the increased pollution and things like that, the wildfires, different things that, that are happening on our planet right now, it also increase the risk of, of um, lung cancer as well. So. Uh, thank you for the kind words. It really means a lot. Uh, looking back at your journey, is there something you would have done differently or you wish you 
Um, gosh, I, I, I can't really think of anything. Um, of course, it's a journey you never want to take, but you end up on it anyway sometimes. <laughs> and um, so just, uh, I would say probably maybe the only thing is that I wish I would have gotten involved in advocacy a little sooner. Um, but I also had to, I had to take the steps as, as I, as I needed to. So the timing is, is, um, is what it is. Um, recently I participated in a, I was a lung force hero, as they call it for the American Lung Association and spoke to, um, various legislative aides, um, in the Senate and the Congress of the United States for our local area, um, spoke to them about funding, um, for research and, and treatment and making healthcare more affordable. Um, so that was, was very rewarding to do that and tell my story there, as well as, um, I spoke to the American Lung Association board, um, and that was very moving. I, um, I'm not usually a person that tears up, but I teared up in that one. <laughs> um, but the American Lung Association does work with lung cancer, but they also do a lot of other um, lung-related um, disease um, advocacy, such as asthma and COPD and bronchitis and different things like that. And uh, one thing I've kind of hammered the American Lung Association about is their their attachment of lung cancer to smoking, and they're and they are getting better about it. I will say that they are getting a lot, lot better. But um, just uh, you know, working towards that and and being able to take these opportunities to speak out. I have one last question to wrap up our Q and A. Uh, if you had to sum up your journey in one sentence or one word, what would that be? Oh boy. Um, I would say that it would be a sentence and that is that there's always something to be thankful for. And you have to take each day. Some days you have to look a little harder. Um, you have to look under a rock or through a small hole or whatever, but there's always, always, always something to be thankful for. So if you're having a difficult day, look for that one thing. You got up this morning. That's something to be thankful for because some people don't get up in the morning um, to, you know, the sun came up, but there's a flower blooming on my front porch, anything like that, just to, just to maintain the positive because going through lung cancer, um, it's tough sometimes, but uh, knowing that there's at least something in each day that you can look at and uh, counting your blessings. This wraps up our Q&A session. So again, uh, thank you so much, Valerie, for your willingness to share your perspective and story on many of the pressing issues in the lung cancer community. We really appreciate the work that you're doing to help raise awareness about lung cancer. Thank and you thank you. Yeah. And thank you everyone for joining our podcast. Uh, please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alcsi.org. We also encourage you to join our monthly newsletter where we will share updates on upcoming projects within our organization. Please fill out the Google form in the chat if you'd like to be added to our mailing list. And before we end this, we also would like to offer a brochure highlighting some key information about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. If you find this helpful or know of anyone who might benefit from the information included in the brochure, feel free to share. Thank you and have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie. Mm -hmm.